Revelation chapter 13, verse 11. Revelation 13, verse 11. Well, as we've been moving through the book of Revelation, when we hit chapter 12, John makes a point of saying that he saw a great wonder or a, a mega sign, a mega symbol, uh, a very important symbol. And, and this begins a segment of the book of Revelation where John is going to see the players on the final world stage, but from a symbolic perspective. You know, uh, there's not a real dragon or some woman floating in the stars, you know, but he, it tells us these things represent things. And so last week, when we began chapter 13, we met the fifth player on the world's final stage, the beast that rose up from out of the sea, the Antichrist. Well, this morning, we're going to meet his fellow beastie boy and partner in crime, the false prophet. And so chapter 13, verse 11. Chapter 13, verse 11 says, and I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. And he exercises all the power of the first beast before him, and causes the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. And he does great wonders so that he makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that has understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred threescore and six." Well, this is a fascinating section of Scripture where people like to have lots of fun. Our goal this morning will uh, be to go through it, uh, understand it correctly in its context, and apply it to our lives. But we start off here by this new power entering the stage. It says, and I beheld, John speaking, I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth. This is a new world power that emerges onto the scene, a new individual uh, at the midway point of the Great Tribulation. So that seven-year period that God is dealing with the nation of Israel and judging the world, this is when at the middle of that seven-year period, this guy will rise up. He does not rise up during the turbulence at the start of the tribulation. We see in Daniel 7, at the start of the tribulation, we see that out of the waters rises these four beasts. The Antichrist reemerges out of the water, but this guy comes not out of the water. He comes out of the earth. He comes onto the scene once the Antichrist has consolidated his power on on the earth. It mentions what he looks like in a very small description here. He has two horns like a lamb. He's not a lamb. He has two horns like a lamb, and he spoke like a dragon. Now, while sheep can have pointy horns, uh, that is rare. They usually have curved horns, like those ram's horns, and uh, John probably means those because the idea is he looks like a lamb. 
Now, we don't need to look in other scriptures to, for this symbol uh, because Revelation chapter 19 verse 20 identifies this beast as the false prophet. In Revelation 19 20, it says, and the beast, that's the Antichrist, was taken, captured that's when Jesus returns, and with him the false prophet, and then it explains everything we're about to read about, which wrought miracles before him and with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshiped his image. So we know this identifies this beast is the false prophet. Now, what's interesting is when we look at a, the beast that rises up out of the earth representing the false prophet, we have something dramatically different uh, when Jesus began his ministry, when the true Christ. It mentions in every gospel that the Holy Spirit descended from heaven like a dove and rested upon Jesus. Every single one of those gospel accounts mention that the Father speaks from heaven saying, you are my beloved, my beloved Son, and in you I am well pleased. John the Baptist actually declares that this voice from heaven, this dove, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove resting upon Jesus coming down from heaven, proved that Jesus was the real deal to him, and then, of course, to us. And we know that from that moment on, Jesus uh, began his public ministry of speaking uh, for the Lord. Jesus is frequently described as the Lamb of God, right? And so this wicked person looks like a lamb, but his ministry isn't launched from heaven. You know, it, it rises out of the earth. It's of man. It is a humanistic, uh, you know, ministry. And his words breathe out the lies of the dragon, the words of Satan. And so since the dove represents the Holy Spirit, of course, the spirit of truth, this beast represents Satan's deceptive mouthpiece. There have been many false prophets over time, but this is the ultimate false prophet, you know, uh, reach, you know the final level up for all false prophets. This is the unholy spirit of error who deceives others into rejecting Christ and convinces them to follow the Antichrist. And that's what we read about in our scripture reading in 1 John chapter 4. In 1 John chapter 4 verse 1, John is preaching this, this letter, this message, is to a group of believers who are encountering false teachers, particularly Gnosticism. And, and he tells them, listen, do not believe every spirit. You know, people are coming to you saying, I've got the Spirit, or the Holy Spirit lives in me, or my ministry has been ordained and empowered by the Holy Spirit. He says, don't believe everybody who says that. Anybody can say that. What's interesting is when we look back in the Old Testament and we see that God is dealing with how to tell a true prophet and a false prophet, he doesn't say, well, a true prophet will do the miraculous and the false prophet can't. He doesn't say that. He says, if a prophet comes to you and he has a dream or he does this and he does miracles, that's not the test. The test is three things. Does he agree with my word in what he says, my law? Does his character match up to my law? And then thirdly, does he teach you to worship me or to follow other gods? Miracles never come into the equation. The test that comes is exactly what John is telling them here. Test every spirit. Don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God because many false prophets are gone out into the world. 
So someone can do the miraculous, that doesn't make them from God. Satan has power too. So how do we know? Hereby know you, or here's how you recognize, this is how you recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Now, I said last week that that doesn't just somebody say, somebody say that Jesus, you know, is God, or I believe in Jesus, or no, anybody can say that. It's the ideology here. It's the concept of we needed a Savior. We cannot save ourselves. We needed God to become a man, to rescue us, to go to the cross for us, to rescue us from our sins. So someone can invoke the name of Jesus. They can say, I believe in Jesus. They can say, I believe in the Christmas story. That's not what John is referencing here. It's the idea, the concept of the gospel. They need to believe the gospel, that we are lost and cannot save ourselves, but God so loved the world that he sent Christ to rescue us. Now, every spirit that does not confess that truth, that Jesus has come in the flesh, the incarnation, the whole idea of the gospel, it's not of God. If it's a humanistic idea, if it's an ideology of us saving ourselves, that's not the Lord. That is the spirit of Antichrist. Wherever you should have heard, it should come. He says, hey, you've been taught that it's coming in the future. There's a specific Antichrist coming in the future, but you need to know that that whole mindset's already in the world. So, what we're seeing here then in this Revelation 13 beast rising up out of the earth is we are seeing the mystery of iniquity in full throttle. It is now fully onto the scene. Satan's plan has been fully executed. We have the unholy trinity here ruling over Satan's false kingdom, his, his, his substitute kingdom, a pathetic attempt to copy the Lord. Satan replacing God the Father, the Antichrist replacing God the Son, and the false prophet replacing God the Holy Spirit. Now, we will see those three mentioned together a couple of times in Revelation, but we're going to see these two beastie boys inseparably side by side throughout the rest of the book of Revelation. For the next three and a half years, they will always be side by side. For it says in verse 12, and he, the false prophet, exercises all the power of the first beast, the Antichrist, before him who's in his presence. They are always side by side. And it says, and he causes the earth and those which dwell therein to worship the first beast, the Antichrist, whose deadly wound was healed. So that he exercises means he carries out all the power, should be the authority, the jurisdiction that Satan has given to the Antichrist. It's his job to carry it out. There is a chain of command in Satan's kingdom on earth, and the false prophet is the one who puts the feet to Satan's policies. He is the one who brings them into being through the Antichrist. And so it says he causes, or this is what he accomplishes, that the earth and all those who dwell therein, all of the unbelievers, they will worship the Antichrist. The false prophet's great task is to get the world to worship the resurrected Antichrist. And how does he convince people to do that? By performing miracles. Verse 13, and he does great wonders. The phrase there, great wonders, it means top-level miraculous signs. Now, I, I bring that up because I think it's important because sometimes we see miracles in our lives, but people dismiss them. Well, say, no, I went forward to church and I asked people to pray for me and God, God healed me, you know? Many of you have probably experienced that. Or there was a situation where we sought the Lord and it looked like there was no way this marriage could be saved and God rescued it, right? 
And people will just go, oh, that's just coincidence, you know? These will not be a situation like this. The miracles that he do, that he, he do. The miracles he do, the miracles that he does, <laughs> they will be top level. They will be ones that no one can dispute as miraculous, as supernatural. And the first one that he does, there's two that will be mentioned in this text. The first one that he does, it says, so that he makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. The first top-level miracle is to duplicate what Elijah did on Mount Carmel when he challenged the prophets of Baal to a test. Remember that? You know, he said, well, if your God be real, then, you know, he can, you know, bring fire down and consume your sacrifice, but if the Lord is real, then he'll do it with my sacrifice. And, of course, we know who won that. But this is interesting because the, the false prophet's mindset here is that like the magicians in Pharaoh's court, he's going to tell people, well, you don't have to fear God. I mean, think about it. I mean, they say that their leader conquered death. Well, so did our leader. You know, they say that their God can do miracles. Well, I can duplicate any miracles their prophets can do. We can take on the Lord and we can win. That will be the mindset. And while some of what he says is true, that he is doing some miracles, it's not the whole truth. Because who won the contest between the Lord and Pharaoh? Not Pharaoh. The magicians, in fact, eventually ran into things they could not duplicate because Satan's power is limited. He's just an angel. And God's power is unlimited. Amen? Do you know that, that God's power is unlimited? Nothing's too hard for him. He has all the resources in all the world and then whatever else he wants to create. He is not Satan's opposite. And God doesn't have an opposite. Now, upon convincing the world that they can stand against the Lord, he will call them to prove their loyalty to the Antichrist and he will convince them to do so by the second miracle. But before we get to the second miracle, we've got to explain how it comes onto the scene. Verse 14, and he will deceive them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast. So again, they're side by side. The Antichrist will make a claim and the false prophet will back it up with a miracle, okay? So it says, he deceives them that dwell on the earth by means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that we should make an image to the beast which had the wound by the sword and did live. We need to make a, a representation, some physical likeness, a statue, an idol, something that you know, will represent the beast so that we can worship him. And here's the second miracle. And he had power, literally it was granted him to grant power, I'm sorry, has granted him to grant life, breath unto this image, this representation, this statue, this idol of the Antichrist, that this idol, this image of the Antichrist should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast, that they should be killed. It will kill. It will be the source of death for those who do not worship it. Now, this is the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, Jesus, and Paul. I'm going to have them put the verses up there uh, because I'm not going to turn to them. I'm just going to reference them. But in Daniel 9, 27, uh, Daniel predicts, because the angel explains it to him, that at the halfway point of the great tribulation, there will be an overflowing of abominations that will desecrate the, the, the rebuilt temple. 
In Jesus, in Matthew 24, 15, he says, when you therefore see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place as prophesied by Daniel the prophet, run, flee to the hills. That's when things are going to get bad. And then, of course, Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, he explains that the mystery of iniquity will be complete when we see that, that son of perdition, the Antichrist, when he is sitting in the temple of God as God, you know, seeking to be acknowledged as God. So this abomination of desolation, this wicked thing, this wicked idol that will desecrate the rebuilt temple. It will not be just some lifeless totem or statue or, or tiki god or something along these lines. This thing, whatever it is, will have the ability to breathe, to speak, and to kill anyone who doesn't worship it. Now, some have suggested that this may be like a robot or you know, some type of animatronics. Uh, personally, that seems a little bit too rigid to me, a little bit impractical. You know, if you, you know, it's like if you don't reach a certain height you know, when you're bowing down, that, you know, the, the thing goes tick, 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 you know, and then you fall into like this you know, pool of sharks or something. You know? It's kind of like you know, it's a small world on nightmare. You, know? you, know, you come around the bend and, you know, and the guy's looking at you and you don't bow low enough and he's like, you know, you know, and you die. You know? You'll never see it's a small world the same again. <laughs> I, that seems a little bit too rigid and impractical for me. Um, because some, uh, Jesus mentions that this idol will stand in the holy place, and then Paul mentions it will sit in the holy place, displaying himself as God, this idea that it can stand and sit and move around. Some have suggested that it will be uh, uh, like an alternate life form, like an AI type of thing, like some kind of construct or robot or, or synthetic person that has the Antichrist mind imprinted on it. That I mean, that may be the case. It seems a little bit uh, too normal for me. Um, I, know, I can't imagine people would be wowed by that. Uh, you know, the technology is definitely moving in that direction, so it's not like I can imagine anyone being surprised by this, you know. Um, I don't lean that way because I just don't think Satan needs to use human technology to achieve his plans. I don't think that would seem supernatural enough for me to convince everyone to bend the knee. But whatever this idol is, it will be a miracle. And it will be a, a top, the second top-level miracle that the false prophet will use to win over the world to his message. Now, having won over their loyalty through these miracles, he will then uh, give them something to display their loyalty, to display that they worship the Antichrist's idol. Look at verse 16. And he, the false prophet, causes all, both small and rich, uh, great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. Now, there is an untranslated word here before the phrase to receive, and it means as a result. So, it says here, he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, as a result of this miracle, as a result of them worshiping this miracle, this image, to receive a mark. Uh, literally, it actually means to receive his mark, the Antichrist mark. Now, the word mark here means a brand or an engraving, an official seal. It is something external and visible to everyone else. It is not in the hand. The word there is actually upon the hand. So it is on the outside of the, of the hand, right hand or the outside of the forehead. It is something that everyone can see. Now, 
this word was used back then to describe a situation in Egypt. Uh, they used this type of branding under Ptolemy Philopater I. He branded Jews with an ivy leaf in recognition that they had worshipped the Greek god Dionysius. And so he went to show that they had proved their loyalty to this god and therefore would be exempt from persecution. He stamped them, branded them with this ivy leaf. That is what the word here is that's what it means. It's a brand. And so what we see here is a, another replacement, another mockery of God, because God has set his seal upon those that are his. I'm going to put a, another series of scriptures up there, because again, I'm just going to reference them. I'm not going to read them all, too many of them. But in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, it mentions that God tells them, hey, listen, here, O Lord, Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, right? And him only, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve, but then he says, in all these words that I've commanded you, do them, right? And then right after that, he says, and write them on these frontlets that you're going to put on your forehead, and write them on these things that you'll wrap around your hand. And so if you see today, you'll see like Orthodox Jews, they'll wear the, the, the phylacteries, you know, that Jesus talked about where they've got little scriptures inside of them and they're on their forehead, they're wrapped around or they'll wear them on their wrist and then they'll wrap these uh, strands around their wrist and it's to remind them to pray about the things that are written inside the little container that has the scriptures. In Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 4, before uh, God sends the Babylonian army to come destroy Jerusalem, Ezekiel has a vision of an angel going throughout the city, and he says, seal, put the mar my mark upon everyone who sighs for all the evil in Jerusalem. In other words, mark them so they're not harmed by this judgment. I'm not judging them. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, it says that we as believers are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, the earnest of our inheritance, the down payment of our, of our eternity. So we have been given the Holy Spirit to live inside of us as a seal, a mark, a brand that we belong to the Lord. And then, of course, in Revelation 7, verses 1 through 3, the angels are told, don't release the winds, don't harm the sea, harm the sea or the, or the trees or anything else until we put the mark of God in the foreheads of the 144,000, right? These are things that have been all throughout the Old and New Testament, and Satan is just, again, this is another replacement, another mockery. I say mockery, but just a, a horrible attempt to replace the Lord. And so it doesn't matter how much money a person has or doesn't have. It doesn't matter if their social status is high or low or if they live in a democracy or a dictatorship, if they're slave or free. By worshiping the Antichrist, a person, from whatever status they have, is accepting his lordship in their life. They are surrendering their lives openly to him. Now, that is the correct understanding of the mark of the beast. This is why believers never need fear somehow mistakenly taking the mark of the beast by getting a social security number or taking a vaccine or doing anything else. If you don't agree with ID numbers or ID chips or vaccines, that's between you and the Lord. But a person cannot take the mark of the beast without openly acknowledging the Antichrist's lordship in their life, without openly declaring their allegiance to the power behind the Antichrist, Satan himself. You can't mistakenly take the mark of the beast. 
Well, the miracles that the false prophet does are deceptive. The mark of the beast isn't deceptive at all. It's not sneaky. It's not tricky. It's not something slipped into people's bodies or minds that's used to control them. It is a mark of ownership that a person willingly submits to as proof of their allegiance to the Antichrist. That is biblical. That's the truth. And so please, please, please do not listen to false teachers who tell you that the mark of the beast is anything other than that. Please don't. You are wasting your time, and you are distracted if you're into that. I have seen so much divisiveness in the church today over this vaccine. There are people who are actually saying, if you get this thing, then you're not a brother or sister in the Lord. Listen, I'm not here to tell you what to think about the vaccine, but if you're going to make it a matter of faith, you're in sin. The Bible has zip to say about it. (laughs) If it's a personal conviction or you've done research and you think it's not safe, that's fine. If you've gone the other route and you say, well, no, I think this is good, that's fine too. We can agree to disagree upon that and still be brothers and sisters in Christ. hesitant. Should we clap? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what I think about that. <laughs> Those people who are into this stuff are either deceived themselves or innocently deceived, or they're, they're, they're letting their fears deceive them, or they're trying to sidetrack you in order to create a following for themselves. None of that, though, is good. And so, whether knowingly or unknowingly, innocently or full well aware of what they're trying to accomplish, they are feeding into divisive, the divisive and hateful attitude that Jesus warned would categorize the end times. He said it in Matthew chapter 24, verse 10 through 13. He described the mentality that would be around. He says that this will be a day, Matthew 24, 10, Then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. I mean, is that not a description of the times we live in these days? I mean, you could be fine and good and all all somebody's got to do is dig up a tweet you you wrote eight years ago and you're done. I'm not your friend anymore. I don't want to talk to you. You can't work here anymore. I mean, you name it, you're, you're out. I was joking the other day with somebody. I said, I don't need somebody to go dig up any tweets from 15 years ago, to, or I guess well, I'm 47 now, or 46 now. I don't need anybody to go dig up any tweets from 31 years ago to know when I was 15. I was messed up. I'm just glad they didn't have that around to record every dumb thing I said back then. Many false prophets shall rise, Jesus said in verse 11, then deceive many. And because iniquity will abound, the love of many shall wax cold. The phrase there is is passive. It means the love of many shall be made to wax cold. That's what the false teacher is going to do. They're going to create divisiveness, hatred, strife, division. And so we're not to give in to that, but instead, he that endures unto the end, the same shall be saved. We are to stay on target. Let's be those who endure, amen? 
Let's stay on target. Let's keep our focus on making disciples and knocking down hell gates. Let's be focused on loving our enemies and shining his lights for all to see until we breathe our last or Jesus comes back. I see so many responses today to all the things that are going on in the world, and I'm like, man, you, you, you read some of the things in church history that, that people who suffered and were persecuted or went through wrongs did. It's nothing like I'm seeing the church react to today. You want to see how, how God is near to those who are being persecuted and the proper response? Go read Fox's Book of Martyrs. If you haven't read that as a Christian, you should. And what you will see is godly men and women whose lives are being taken from them, and yet they have peace in their hearts. They have joy in their hearts. Yes, they're frightened. No, they don't want to die, but they know that God's presence is with them. Just as he promised that not one sparrow falls to the ground without him, surely you are worth more than sparrows. He is with us to the very end, even when we breathe our last. And so because of that, many of these individuals who gave their lives for the gospel, doing so with joy in their hearts, loving their enemies, were able to convert the people who were were scheduled to be the executioners, and many of those executioners got saved and took their sides and were beheaded or killed right next to them. That's the power of God. Anybody can put an angry tweet on the web. Anybody can write a nasty letter or email. That's the power of God that brings light, death to life and darkness to light and brings people from the kingdom of, of hell into the kingdom of heaven. Let's be those who endure. Now, this mark, this proof of loyalty to the Antichrist will be a requirement to legally exist during this awful time. Look at verse 17. And he also is going to cause not just them to receive this mark, but also that no man might buy or sell save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. The result of them worshiping the beast and taking this mark is that this will be a required thing to show in order to buy or sell, to live. Now, it's possible this is why the false prophet has two horns like a lamb. We already know he's going to be in charge of the religion of the Antichrist kingdom, but here we see he's going to be in charge of the economy of the Antichrist kingdom. So maybe that's why he's got two horns. He's got two areas of authority. I don't know. Sounds good to me, but if you've got a better idea, that's cool too. So that no man might, they will not have the ability It won't be possible to buy or sell unless they have this brand, or they could also have the name of the beast or the number of his name. Uh, Because I imagine putting this official brand on every person in the world in a short span of uh, required to enforce this uh, on every economy, I imagine that's going to take some time. Uh, And so there there will be alternate ways to prove one's loyalty, you know. Um, Anyway. What are these alternate ways? The name of the beast, and then it mentions something weird, the number of his name. What's that? Well, in the ancient world, um, letters were assigned numerical value in some languages. Not all of them, but in some of them. Hebrew and Greek are two that did. Um, In fact, graffiti in the ruins of Pompeii, which dates to around uh, 79 AD, reads this. Amerimnus thought upon his lady Harmonia for good. The number of her honorable name is 45. Ooh. Amerimnus is quite the romantic there. <laughs> there is nothing like writing a bit of poetry to my beloved 551 five, over there. 
Yes, I do know Beverly's numerical name. I'll be sure to include training on numerical romance in the next marriage class that we do. <laughs> this is a, a, uh, a thing, it's called isopsophy. It's a Greek word that means equal pebbles. It's when a number is used as the equivalent of a name. So you take all the, the name, you know, all the letters, and you add, each letter has a numerical value. You take the name, you add it up, and that's the number of someone's name. Um, it was a common uh, way to create clever song verses or political slogans. That way you could get away with it because you'd put the guy's name in there but put his number and they wouldn't know right away what name you were talking about. You had to do the math. And so that was kind of very popular to about 200 AD. So it's popular in John's day. So whatever this is here that's going on, whether it's a, a, a number or a name added to your bank account or your bank card, or maybe it's a symbol or a sticker that you can wear, you know, like the I voted one. You'll, you'll never look at that sticker the same from now on. I don't know. Do you want the sticker? No, 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 I, I don't. I definitely don't. The little booth there looks a little bit too much like a shrine. I'm going to stay away. Whatever it is, it will be something that you can only get from official authorities by rejecting Jesus Christ and openly worshiping the Antichrist. And then you will show evidence of that by whatever this thing is. Now, normally we think, okay, great, this is the end, chapter 14. But because John is living in a time and culture where isopsophy is very common, he can't just say the Antichrist has a number without telling us what it is. And so as we close out this chapter, John gives those who are going to be alive during the Great Tribulation a clear way to help them identify the Antichrist. Look at verse 18. Here is wisdom. Let him that has understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Wisdom is the ability to understand something and then act accordingly, the correctly in light of what you're, like, you can have good knowledge. You can, I can know that this is probably a good, you know, foot and a half drop and will probably hurt my back if I jump off it. Wisdom says stay on the stage, Will. Wisdom, lack of wisdom would just go and do it anyway. So the idea is, is I'm going to give you some information. Here's wisdom. We'll know correctly what to do with it. You'll, you'll understand that this is going to help you recognize the Antichrist. So here is wisdom. Let him that has understanding. So now we know who he's talking to. Who is this wisdom for? The phrase him that has understanding means the one presently possessing a mind. In other words, those who have minds during this time period, I will not have a mind during this time period. I'm going to be with the Lord. I won't be in this time period. Neither will you if you're a believer. So those who are living during this time period who have a mind, are you, is your brain alive? Okay, you can understand this if you're living during that time. Let that person count the number of the beast. Let them add it up. For it is the number of a man, his number is 666. This identifying number is only going to make sense to those whose minds are present during the great tribulation. It will not make any sense to our minds since we are not presently living in the great tribulation. So, you know, I remember it was popular when I first became a Christian. Ronald Reagan was a president. Ronald Wilson Reagan. 666. Yeah? Get it? No, it's okay. Henry Kissinger was a common person to accuse of that because his name in some language added up to that. Caesar Nero was one that was very popular in the early church because if you took his name, wrote it in Latin, and then converted it to Hebrew, those letters to Hebrew, it added up to 666. That's a little bit too complicated for me. 
I don't think John is saying you need to have a PhD in multiple languages in like philology. You know, you got to be J.R.R. Tolkien and create your own language. I don't think you need to be able to understand what this means. You don't need to know that, okay? It will make easy sense to every, anyone who is alive during this time. And that's why it won't make sense to us. We're not alive during that time. This is why trying or tying the number 666 to a person or a vaccine or an ID chip or anything else in our day is a waste of time. It is fruitless. You and I will always be wrong if we claim we found the mark of the beast now because this verse wasn't written for our benefit. This is also why we don't need to run around frightened by the number 666. It's not evil or magical. I worked in the restaurant industry for years. And when you work in the restaurant industry, at some point in time, you find yourself on a register. Anytime someone's bill came up, 666, it was like, oh, dear God, add a brownie, you know? You know? <laughs> Go large, as quick as possible, please, you know? You know? Can I upsize anything, you know? Are you hungry, you know? Can I get you something? I, as whatever to change the bill and as quickly as possible. We don't need to fear those things. It's, it's, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to put it everywhere, but, you know, we don't need to fear those things. It's not evil or magical. It's, it's an identifier for a person. You know, when I went to the pastor's conference this year, they give you a, a, um, uh, a lanyard, thank you, and it has your name on it, you know, and they also have a family ID number there so that if your kids are acting up or if they get hurt or something, they flash your number up on the screen and then you can go and leave, you know, and everybody can watch and go, oh, that's 422, you know. I, it was interesting, this last year, I went up and I got my lanyard and it said 666. <laughs> I said, is someone trying to tell me something? I said, because I'm just going to be blunt with you. If you flash the number, I'm not going to get my kid. <laughs> so it's not happening. <laughs> Go to get my kid pelted with stones. Kill him before he can destroy the world. <laughs> it's like that. It's an identifier for a person, not me. A specific man who will rise to prominence at the very end of humanity's rebellion against Jesus. Now, it is interesting to note, it says it's the number of a man. Jesus' name, in almost all of its forms, adds up to 888, always. Isn't that interesting? The number in the ancient world for new beginnings, the day Jesus rose from the dead. It's also interesting to note that God uses all throughout the book of Revelation 7 to describe his, his work, right? Seven was in, ancient, in the ancient world the number of completion. Seven days in a week, seven colors of the rainbow, seven notes on a musical scale. And thus the number 666, it represents the very best that man can do. The Antichrist will reach the highest peak of human power, but despite claiming to be God and commanding people to worship him, he will still only be a man and therefore not worthy of us following him. You see, John, when he gives this indicator, he is urging all of humanity to never bow the knee to a man. He is reminding them that even though they may be barred from buying food, that they may even be beheaded for refusing to worship this man, Jesus is still better. Amen? He's still better. 
to side with the Antichrist is to forfeit all hope in this life and in eternity. To side with Jesus, it may bring immediate suffering, but it will bring an eternity of joy. And thus it makes sense for us to redeclare our allegiance to the Lord this morning as we take the Lord's Supper. To make that declaration. That's what it says. For as many as you do this, you do show, declare the Lord's death on our behalf, right? Every time you hold it up, you're saying, I have decided to follow Jesus. He is my king. He is my savior. I am his and he is mine. And so it makes sense to celebrate what his suffering accomplished for us, to remember what our eternal joy cost him and to thank him for the great love that brought him from heaven to the cross and to recommit ourselves to occupying until he comes. So let's pray. Lord, I love what John is doing here because he is reminding us that those who are living in that day, well, they will need to identify this man, whether they're believer or unbeliever. They, anyone getting a hold of the book of Revelation in this time period, they can read this and they can say, oh, okay, that guy's bad. Jesus is better. But Lord, we're not living in that time, so we're not looking for Antichrist. We're not, we're not called to try to figure that out. We're looking for you, Lord. And so this morning, as we're going to remember what you did for us and your great love for us, we recommit our allegiance to you. You are our king. You are the one we serve. And Lord, you have given us marching orders, and we recommit ourselves to staying on our task, to being faithful soldiers, not entangling ourselves in the affairs of this life. Fill us with your spirit, Lord, as we remember you and recommit this to you, that we might live out our commitment. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.